Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the red versus blue divide in the U.S. is famously intractable, but conservatives and liberals, rich and poor, healthy and sick, employed and not, all face the same obstacles. So where's the common ground? Authors Joel Berg and Matt Taibbi were in Seattle recently to discuss that question, what happened in the election, and what the presidency of Donald Trump means going forward. Joel Berg is the author of America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation, and the CEO of Hunger Free America. Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone magazine. His latest book is Insane Clown President, Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. They spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 2nd, thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Katie Sewell introduces the event. Matt Taibbi has reported on politics, media, finance, and sports, and is the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Divide, Griftopia, and The Great Derangement. Matt is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone, and he won the 2008 National Magazine Award for his columns there. Matt covered the 2008 presidential campaign for Real Time with Bill Maher, served as a contributor on Countdown with Keith Olbermann. He's also appeared on Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC and Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. His latest book is Insane Clown President, Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. Uh, And we're going to begin tonight's show with Joel Berg. Joel wrote this decade's definitive book on U.S. hunger called All You Can Eat, How Hungry is America? He's also currently the CEO of Hunger Free America. He's been interviewed extensively on the, by the national and international media and news, appearing on Hardball with Chris Matthews, Fox News, CNN, National Public Radio, The Kudlow Report, All In with Chris Hayes, and the NBC Evening News. He's also regularly quoted by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. And his new book is America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. Please join me in welcoming Joel Berg. Thank you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thanks to Town Hall. I want to thank my special guest, Frederick Douglass, for coming here uh, tonight. Uh, His work is being recognized more and more, and that's just really, really, really important. Uh, I have a plug for Hunger Free America, the group I run in my day job. You can go to our website, hungerfreeamerica.org. You can uh, donate to our advocacy and direct service work. You can also learn how you can volunteer more effectively, because I got to tell you, showing up on Christmas and Thanksgiving to move the same can five times that an eighth grader just moved the day before isn't ending hunger. And you can also find out about how you can advocate against some of the evil things that are probably going to happen in Washington between the time I start tonight and end. Uh, so, so, do, so do go to our website and, and please check that out. And for people listening on radio or anyone in this audience, if you are hungry yourself, if the $5 you spent on admission was the $5 you were going to spend for your last meal, then you can call our, web, our hotline at one 866 hungry anywhere in the country and find how you can get food resources near you. So my book, thank you. So my book is a parody of self-help books, right? And the opening chapter is basically the talk. And I basically say, America, we need to talk. Yes, 
that kind of talk. I know it's late and you got to go to work early, but this just isn't working, America. I love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. What do you mean you don't know why? Does the name government shutdown mean anything to you? Yes, that government shutdown. You know, the one in which you allowed a handful of extremists and a rabbi hissy fit to padlock your entire government supposedly to protest paying the bills that you previously voted to fund. Oh, now you remember. I also hope that you recall that the shutdown closed national parks, shuttered medical research facilities, idled Alaska fishing fleets, delayed flights, and furloughed nearly a million workers. Do you remember when a fanatical right-wing congressman, Randy Neubauer, of Texas, of course, who helped force all government facilities to close, then went to DC's World War II memorial to berate a park ranger for closing down the memorial he forced to close. There's a Texas term for that, it's called chutzpah. <laughs> there is uh, Randy Neubauer of, of Texas. And if you don't believe America's out of whack, I have another chart for you. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, not even on all of 2015, but just much of 2015, 13 toddlers shot themselves, and two others killed other people. Now, on the left is uh, Glacier National Park, and on the right is the new name for Glacier National Park, Tropical Sunburn National Park there. And that is, uh, yes, Cong uh, Senator Inhofe of Oklahoma. He's on the floor of the US Senate with a snowball proving that uh, global warming isn't really happening. And no, this is not Photoshop. This is not from The Onion. That is an actual supposed US senator uh, on, on the floor. So the chapters of my book, this is the introduction that talk about why America's broken. And I say, I hate Celine Dion and Poutine and hockey, so I can't move to Canada. And pickled fish and ABBA are out of the question. So Sweden, despite their great social programs, I can't move there. And so we've got to make this work. And my main point of the book is that we really are in a relationship with the country. And it really is a cop-out to say in virtually any relationship, one side's entirely to blame. And I point out that, you know, the, the media coverage that, oh boy, someone was really fascinating because they were a voter choosing between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I say they're not fascinating, they're idiots. The only thing those two have in common is a bad barber. And, and so they shouldn't be coddled and understood. They should be told they're idiots. And frankly, now I'll piss off some of you if any of you voted for Jill Stein and believed. And, and, oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Susan Sarandon was so right. Hillary was going to be far more dangerous than Trump, and he was going to be real peacemaker. No, if you looked at the facts and a few decades of records, Hillary wasn't perfect, but she was a progressive, and Donald Trump's a maniac. So my point is, people need to be held accountable, including the whistling Bernie bros in the back there, who then voted for Jill Stein. So uh, the chapters of the book each are about a different self-help cliche. One is eat, pray, love, then get fired for taking so much time off work. Another is uh, chicken soup for the soul brothers and soul sisters, why kind personal gestures aren't enough to overcome structural racism. They're just not that into you, why white guys are voting against the Democrats. Uh, the rules, the time-tested rules for capturing Mr. Right Wing. Friends without benefits, or why buy the voter when you can get the milk for free? And of course, Republicans are from Mars, Democrats are from Venus. 
So the key themes of my book is that this is a personal relationship and we can't expect saviors. It was wrong for progressives to think Obama was going to fix everything magically on his own. It's wrong for whoever voted for Trump to think he's going to fix everything. And the first question you're probably going to ask us, me or Matt, oh, who's going to save us for the Democrats? Is Elizabeth Warren going to save us? That's missing the point. Only we can save us. Two is facts matter. Facts matter. It matters when the right makes up crap, and it matters when the left is increasingly making up crap. Three, racism and sexism are defining features of every portion of American society and undergird every single problem we have as a nation, but merely addressing racism and sexism are not enough to fix our problems. Four, probably my most important point as a professional anti-poverty advocate is the very same problems that are inflicting, inflicting the middle class, declining wages, lack of jobs, lack of affordable universal health care, lack of a serious child care system, lack of uh, real public transportation in most places are the very same things that are increasing poverty in America. And the debate among progressives now, oh, well, do we worry about working class white people in rural areas or do we worry about inner city people of color is missing the boat. The very same problems afflicting one group are afflicting the other group and the very same solutions are needed to help both. Five. I spend a fair amount of time making fun of the food movement and you foodies out there who are more concerned about making sure that you can get this pristine thousand dollar an ounce hyper, you know, hydroponic kale instead of really worrying about making sure that all Americans have access to affordable, nutritious food. What's that? Thank you for that. That was very illustrative. That's exact. Actually, this is great because the hecklers are going to prove every one of my points. <laughs> uh, out of all the things, out of all the things that Trump says that are disturbing, and that's a long-ass list, his idea that there's no such thing as collective interest among nations is crazy. And I talk about how much poverty and hunger in the United States are dependent on what's going on overseas and how the solutions to what we need to do overseas, replacing our constant war-making with what I call muscular peacemaking and really standing up for human rights, ties all these programs together and all these problems together. The last third of my book is actually solutions, so I don't want to depress the hell out of you, but I basically call for a responsibility for all society. I obviously agree with the left that we need to hold Wall Street accountable and we need to make sure our defense contractors are accountable and the wealthy should pay their fair share of taxes again, but you know what? An able-bodied person who can work and getting public assistance should work. And you know who else agrees with me on that? People on public assistance, they want jobs. And this idea that you have to care about one thing or the other is ridiculous. That you either have to care about Black Lives Matter and the horrible, horrible disease of police brutality, or you have to care about black-on-black -black crime. And the truth is both are serious issues, and we shouldn't be put into a box that only one of those is somehow a serious issue. And, last, and my two embodiments of my calls for a responsibility for all society, and by the way, I used to speak quickly because I'm from New York, but because I've been in the South on this book tour, I've slowed down, so forgive me. <laughs> my responsibility for all America calls for an expansion of the AmeriCorps National Service Program in which people can serve their country and earn money and to pay for college. For those of you who think that my old boss Bill Clinton is horrible, horrible, horrible right-winger, I will remind you he started the AmeriCorps National Service Program and the only reason the right hates it is because it's affiliated with Clinton. 
People don't get a penny of educational aid unless they work. Two-thirds of the money goes through states. These senators or congressmen who say it's wrong to pay volunteers get $174,000 a year for their volunteer service to the country. <laughs> and this program gets things done for the country. So Donald Trump and Paul Ryan are talking about eliminating it. I urge you right after you leave here or tomorrow morning to call your senators to support this funding. And I call for dramatically combining all the federal nutrition assistance programs and anti-poverty programs into one program and making them available through a smartphone so low-income people don't have to wait online day after day after day at 50 different offices. And lastly, in my book, I have a, a series of very concrete things people can do to fight back. So I hate PowerPoint presentations, so I'm going to give you one anyway. That is the SS Minicata. My mother came on that boat to Ellis Island at two months old in 1923. The New York Times says that the harbor was so clogged with ice that uh, they couldn't make deliveries in the harbor that day of coal. Uh, she was not technically a refugee under US law at the time, but there's no question her family would have been slaughtered had they not been allowed into America. So I'm pretty pro-refugee. And if any of you are not, then I'd ask you uh, to explain your Native American heritage to me. <laughs> we are a nation of anti-immigrant immigrants, and it's friggin' hypocritical. If you've ever been on a New York City subway and you don't think anyone can push their way on, and someone pushes their way on, then at the next stop, you really don't think someone can push their way on, and they push their way on. Who's the maddest? The person pushed their way on at the previous stop. And that's exactly how we are about immigration. Only our people are legitimate. And lest, lest you think in the cheap seats back there, you're going to have to buy my book if you can't see this from back here. But that's a chart showing how uh, deportation spiked up under Obama. His great, brilliant strategy was that if he did this, then the Republicans, of course, would see he was legitimate on immigration and strike a deal with them. Uh-huh. Now, this part, next part of my book goes through the problem, the intervention. And for radio, I'll have to describe this. It's a chart that shows productivity going through the roof and worker compensation staying flat. American workers aren't being screwed because they're not working hard enough. It's because they're being screwed. Second, this line shows that the middle class is declining in exactly the same proportion and time period that the American labor movement has been declining. And Frederick Douglass, the real dead Frederick Douglass, as you know, said, uh, power never concedes itself willingly, it never has, it never will. The fact of the matter is, the reason wages have gone down is because our laws have allowed them to go down and because unions have had less power to keep people accountable. This is a chart that shows the National Low Income, uh, Income Housing Coalition, and on the top it shows how much money you need to afford basic housing in America versus the minimum wage. Guess what? Housing's been going up far more than uh, the minimum wage. And for people say, Joel, to fight hunger, you don't need to get people higher wages or jobs. You don't need to ensure that they have enough SNAP benefits, the new name for food stamps. Just teach those lazy, ignorant people how to cook and grow their own food from scratch. And you know, they may have two or three jobs, but they're just too lazy. And you know, maybe we need to give them nutrition education. Many even good progressives tell me that. Well, the bottom line is if people earn less than their housing, they don't have enough money for food. Who is getting the money? CEOs are getting the money. If you guys are CEOs, I'm making fun of you unless you give a big check to Hunger Free America, Mr. Gates, then I love you. Uh, the biggest difference between poor people and rich people isn't income, although the difference between incomes of rich people and poor people is vast. The biggest difference is assets, what people own. 
And this chart shows that the, even a bigger difference is between white, black, and Latino families, that white people have far more assets over time, perpetuating the wealth and income and inequality in America. This shows a chart which showing the top 1% in America has a far higher percentage of the national assets and income than any other industrialized Western nation. This isn't about the immutable laws of economics. This is about our policies that suck. This is Dwight D. Eisenhower, the last socialist president in America. For you guys on radio, he's golfing. Uh, under Dwight D. Eisenhower, the top marginal tax rate in America was 94%. And many rich people actually paid that because they had this crazy patriotic idea that they should actually pay for things like wars. Ta now the top marginal tax rate is 39% and many of the wealthy don't even pay that. This is probably the most important chart in my book, and if you remember one thing, remember this. Between 2009 and 2012, those are 48 months, right? My math isn't great, but four years, 48 months. A third of the country lived below the poverty line at some point during those 48 months. Less than 3% of the people in America lived below the poverty line all those four years. The number of people in America who are sometimes poor is 10 times the number of people in America who are always poor. And this is critical because the elites and the media and elected officials would make you think the main problem in poverty in America, like <clears throat> President Trump, who keeps referring to the cycle of poverty, implying that it's year after year after year. That's part of the problem, but the main problem is that middle-class people get shoved into poverty because they're shafted by the economy. I have to talk about hunger a bit. Mr. Monopoly on there shows billionaire wealth. The red line shows hunger. And even though there was a slight dip in hunger in 2015 because the economy started really recovering in terms of wages, you will see that the number of people living in hunger or food insecurity in America today, 42 million people is far higher than before the start of the recession, even though we have the highest stock market in world American history. This is the new normal, and we shouldn't accept it. Second hunger chart, this plots hunger versus the minimum wage nationwide. And I applaud Seattle for raising the minimum wage, and I applaud the Fight for 15 movement. I, I, don't, I don't see all these companies moving to Guatemala because you're paying workers enough to feed their families. Some of the owners might have to have. So, some of the owners complaining they couldn't possibly afford to pay their workers a, a $15 an hour wage might have to muddle through with five vacation homes instead of six. I have depressed you, so cheer up. Uh, Dick Cheney once said that the reason we have so little money to spend on the military is we're spending so much money on food stamps and highways. Well, yellow's food stamps, red is highways, radio listeners, they're really small. The guns are guns, they're really big. Dick Cheney lied. I know you're shocked. <laughs> the right never refers to tax cuts as spending, but tax cuts are spending, and the vast majority of spending is going tax cuts to rich people. And if some of you are rich people, sorry, but just donate to me and I won't make fun of you again. Canadians are really happy because they have universal health care and things like that. For all the talk, you don't hear people saying, we've got to build a wall between us and Canada because all these horrible refugees are fleeing the oppression of health care. <laughs> you probably can't see this chart from there, but the American flag is, is representing how much hunger there is in America, and the other bars are other countries. And you see America is higher per capita hunger than Greece, Slovak Republic. Yes, America, be proud of that. Share up again. Uh, 
This is the one and only time I met Barack Obama. This is about two seconds before I met him, and that grin totally went away from his face. I'm at a White House Christmas party that I was accidentally invited to in 2008, and everyone's congratulating the First Lady on how beautiful her gown is, congratulating the President on, on why he, you know, he just won re-election, and boy, I hope you guys get some time off for the holidays. I'm there. Mr. President, I hope you pledge to veto any bill that'll cut food stamps. And he sort of blows me off with a joke. Uh, another reason why we can't rely on one person to save everything. Even though he was the first president in U.S. history who grew up in a family that personally received food stamps benefits, his mother got food stamps when he went, she went to nursing school, he signed into law $14 billion in snap cuts. And don't believe in false equivalents, he's not as bad as the other side, the other side would have done 10 times worse. Uh, I'm not saying the Tea Party is racist, I just report you decide. All I'm showing is on the left is the Tea Party Don't Tread on Me sign that was used by Klansmen and the guy on top speaking was convicted of bombing a black church and I'm showing Ted Cruz in front of the same symbol. I'm not saying anything, you decide. This is uh, Trump U. I want to thank a certain person in the audience for doing this. I, I won't sing you the whole Trump U fight song. You'll have to read my book to get it. But the last line is, but you'll forget about the Donald's crookedness if we just build a wall. That's the punchline uh, there. Uh, this is another chart, that, that's the guy from Duck Dynasty, and this is 69 rural white counties in the United States, rural white counties that had poverty rates double the national average. You'd think they'd be democratic. Well, when Bill Clinton ran for president in two, uh, 1992, I worked on that campaign, he won these counties by uh, 5%. Obama lost them by about 18% in, in uh, 2008. This myth that he brought everyone together and all these white people voted for him just wasn't true. Most white people still vote against him then. And then in uh, 2012, he lost these counties by 30%, and Hillary lost them by 50 If you think, oh, well, we're in, a blue, you know, we're in a progressive state. We'll just get more people out to vote next time. New York will team up with us. We'll team up the country. This is the control of state legislatures who write much of the laws and as well as congressional district lines. And this is how progressives are dealing with this reality. Here's another reality progressives aren't dealing with. It's great to raise the minimum wage, but if you're at a CVS and, and instead of paying workers there, they replace them with an electronic kiosk or robots are replacing uh, workers. And I know many of you probably hate NAFTA and TTP, but the reality is robots have stolen 10 times more jobs in America than trade has, and progressives just aren't dealing that we need a new gig economy with portable benefits and a real reaction to modernity. This is Occupy Wall Street. I make fun of the left as well in the book for basically talking to each other and drumming instead of going out and organizing really low-income people. I make fun of the Sanders campaign, sorry, but uh, many of his donors were upper-middle-class white people who were pissed that upper-middle-class upper people were making more than them. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is that neither were giving real solutions to real problems faced by the country. And we need to get serious as progressives about talking to the country, not just whining to each other or drumming a lot. Uh, I, I talk a lot in my book about the right being fact-adverse. I don't have this book, it just happened a few weeks ago. Some left-wing blogger took one paragraph I wrote entirely out of context, labeled me the worst person on the planet because I was a horrible right-winger, and then all these people went on his website, didn't read a single thing I had written, just said, took his characterization, I was evil, and one person said, Joel Berg should commit suicide. 
and, and this is a so-called progressive. This, you may remember this meme, it was all over around the time of the New York primary. All these Bernie bros were saying, look at this, the horrible mainstream media, they won't print this picture of this massive Bernie rally in New York City. That's France, Charlie Hebo protest. And when the left goes into the dirt and becomes as fact adverse as the right, we are in big trouble. That is not a winning solution. Uh, most members of the House of Representatives get reelected over and over again. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, raise money incessantly, and I talk about how we need a constitutional amendment to stop that. I'm sorry I'm going so slow, but uh, this is what people said about Hillary Clinton in the campaign. If you don't think misogyny was one of the reasons she got killed, think again. And if you think, okay, oh, she's just uniquely bad, the same things are said about Patty Murray, the same things are said about Elizabeth Warren. This is still a serious, serious problem that I talk about in the book. Finally, the counseling session. What's that? Is that more of a problem than mass incarceration, which she was an architect of? I'll tell you what. You write a few hundred page book, get invited here, and then you can, I can interrupt you. So we'll, we'll have that discussion uh, you know, uh, later. And, and by the way, the left needs to learn civility. And they need to learn free expression. And, and shutting down people we disagree with or shouting over them, there's a question and answer period, and I'll be glad to answer a question about mass incarceration, which I answer later in the book, although I will point out the most popular parts of the United States that supported the 1996 crime bill were low-income communities of color. They were disproportionately harmed by the bill, but they were also disproportionately helped because crime went down in most of them. Now, this is a picture of where low-income people go to get help from the government or from the nonprofit sector. They have to go to a zillion different places, and I call for replacing them with that smartphone. So I will close with this. We need to come together. We need to come together as a movement by doing three things. Isolating the opposition and saying they're full of crap in a respectful, fact-based way but most importantly, organizing the people most impacted. There's too many hunger groups say, oh, we're just gonna make upper middle class white people feel guilty about hunger and that'll end it. No social movement in history has been won by one people on behalf of another. And we need to make sure a pro-immigration movement actually has immigrants involved. An anti-poverty movement actually has low-income people in leadership movements. And we need to bring them together with people who disagree with us, people who don't already agree with us, and convince them not just talk to each other. Now, you say this is too hard, the political system's too broken. Well, we've already seen incredible things just in the last few weeks. There's no question that courts are influenced by public opinion. There's no question that the massive rallies in the streets influence the courts to rule the Trump uh, uh, order on immigration unconstitutional. They're already back down on some of their Obamacare repeals. If you say taking five minutes to call your elected official or an hour go to town hall is too tough, I'll remind you what tough is. Tough was landing at Normandy Beach under machine gun fire and mortar fire. Tough was Susan B. Anthony chaining herself to a voting booth because she wasn't allowed to vote. Tough was John Lewis getting the crap beat out of him because he thought he should be able to vote. And tough is a woman working two jobs, looking her kids in the eye and telling them she doesn't have enough money to pay for food tonight. That's tough. Fighting back, retaking our country, building a progressive agenda, that's easy, and we all must work together to do it. Thank you.
Hi. That was great. Uh, thank, thank you so much, Joel. That was, re that was really interesting. Uh, I don't have a, a presentation like that. I wish I did. That was really cool. Um, so applause for Joel. Um, thank you all for coming out. I'm always, I've actually been in this venue before, and I'm always amazed by uh, the crowds that come out. In fact, the last time I was here, I took a picture uh, of the crowd before I, uh, before I came out, and I showed it to my wife when I came home. I said, look at all these people who came out. And she said, oh, who was the real speaker? <laughs> I said, no, they, I, they came out for me, and she was reading a book. She's like, mm -hmm, yeah, you know. Like that. So thank you, at least uh, you know, I, I get to see it. Um, and I really appreciate you all coming out, and you're welcome to, to heckle me if you want to. Uh, um, so the, the book I wrote uh, is called Insane Clown President, and it's, uh, it's a campaign trail diary, and since we don't have a lot of time today, I guess I'll just get to the main point of it, which is it's really a book about um, how Donald Trump got elected, and how the flaws in our electoral system, and sort of the problems with the campaign trail and, and our whole system of campaigning, he essentially found, he cracked the code. He found the flaw in the Death Star, uh, and he flew right through it. And it was something that was, that was sort of readily apparent to, to veteran campaign reporters for a long time, that there were weaknesses in the system that could be exploited by somebody who was canny enough uh, to do it, and Donald Trump was that person. I, uh, I had, without knowing it, I, I had been waiting for probably 12 years for something like Donald Trump to happen. Uh, I had covered four presidential campaigns coming into this year for, for Rolling Stone. And um, I had spent a lot of time, I had a, a unique vantage point on the campaign process. And in order to understand this, I have to give you some background about how, the, how campaign reporting actually works. Uh, for most people, for most reporters who cover the campaign, they're on uh, these beastly schedules. They're busy all the time. The newspaper reporters, the people who work for the major uh, national dailies, they're typically, in the old days, they were writing at least one story a day. Uh, nowadays, because of the web, uh, those same people might be filing a story for the, for the newspaper, and then they might also be blogging and vlogging, uh, and they were busy constantly. So you would go from a city to uh, to a venue, and then you get onto a plane, you go to another venue, and all the time you're writing, writing, writing. After each event, you have to file. They herd you into this windowless room that they call a filing room. It's always the worst room in every building. Uh, and the reporters go in there, and they're work, working, working, working all the time. The TV people always have to do hits after each event. Every time the candidate changes his or her speech, you have to do an update on it. So all these people who have these conventional reporting jobs, are, they're busy all the time. But as a magazine reporter, uh, and there aren't that many of them on the campaign trail, and this is another uh, sort of curious aspect to the campaign phenomenon that probably pe most people don't know, it's incredibly expensive to cover the campaign. Uh, the last trip I was on with Donald Trump, it was a three-day jaunt, and the bill was about $12,000. So that totally excludes the alternative media which means that really the only people who can afford to cover the campaign over and over and over again 
are these big corporate enterprises, and mostly the magazines don't do it. They're not there day after day. If they do, they fly in for a couple of days, and that's it. So the people who are there day after day, week after week, they're a, uh, from a specific group, and they're busy all the time. They don't have time to do this sort of um, big picture, what's it all about, Alfie kind of uh, story about, about the campaign process. But I was different. You know, for Rolling Stone, I'm filing once a month, once every six weeks, once every two months. And so every time we got to those filing rooms, everybody else was hammering away in their computers, and I would just be sitting twiddling my thumbs. Um, it got to the point where people were very, very annoyed by it. Uh, at one point, I had, a, I had a person reprimand me because I was too loudly flipping the pages of a Sports Illustrated. That was my first time uh, out on the campaign. Another time I was in Houston, I actually bought a Rubik's Cube, and everybody was working, and that was too loud. I got in trouble for that. So I ended up uh, spending a lot of time just sitting, doing literally nothing, and watching the campaign process and thinking, what, is, what, is, what are we actually doing here? Uh, and that leads you to a lot of observations about what the process really is. And I started to think about the financial dynamics of campaigning and what was actually going on in the plane. There's really two groups of people who are on uh, what you call the bus. Everybody remember the Boys in the Bus book by Timothy Krause, which is sort of the seminal book about the campaign trail, uh, campaign reporting. The, the, there's only two groups of people. There's the campaign, and then there's the press. And they each have financial incentives that they have to meet. The campaign, uh, the candidate and the candidate's aides, they're essentially supported by a small group of corporate donors, and they have very concrete interests. Uh, and essentially, the trade there is very obvious. It's, we're going to give you money, and in, in return, we're going to get policy favors. And so that dynamic exists uh, for the politicians who are in the plane. The reporters have their own set of financial dynamics. They have to get uh, ratings, hits, eyeballs, subscriptions, and that's how they make their money. And these two groups of people, these two groups, are sort of codependent upon each other. And after a while, they become, they sort of start to adopt each other's values as they engage in this sort of dualistic uh, financial enterprise, where essentially you're looking for the, the person who's eventually going to be the major party nominee uh, is the candidate who best synergizes these two dynamics that are going on into the plane. The person has to be, on the one hand, sort of morally flexible enough to deliver the policy gifts uh, that you have to give to the donors, and on the other hand, uh, has to be entertaining enough uh, to get the hits and the eyeballs and the subscriptions and the ratings that the reporters need to make their money. And remember, the press is an entirely commercial enterprise now. It's not the 50s when the news business was understood to be uh, a loss leader. If you remember the original conception of the news business after the Telecommunications Act in the 30s was essentially that the government was going to lease out the public airwaves to private companies, and in return, they would uh, engage in a public service. They, would have, they, would, they were supposed to be civic-minded. So in the old days, news companies, um, they didn't try to make money with news. News was a loss leader. They made their money through sports and entertainment and other things. 
uh, and news was something that they did out of, out of a civic duty. Well, that all up, went up in smoke in the 80s and 90s, and then there, was the, there were other changes in the business. There was the sort of innovation of Fox News, which uh, specifically targeted a demographic, and they created news to fit a demographic, and so they were uh, essentially sort of synergizing entertainment and news at the same time. Then you added the whole issue of cable news, which was now 24 hours. They needed to fill vast oceans of content. And so if you add all these factors up, you know, the, the media needs to make money, it needs to fill oceans of airtime, uh, and it needs to be entertaining. The campaign trail is sort of the perfect solution to all those problems. It's going on all the time. Uh, you can make a news story about it virtually every single day. And when there isn't something going on, when there isn't a speech or a Jefferson Jackson dinner or a debate, you can be talking about it in between. It's exactly like sports, and sports is the same way. In between the games, you can talk about the next game. And so that's, that's the financial dynamic of the campaign trail. And so over time, you start to think about what are these, what are these people in the plane actually doing? Well, one group of people is trying to fulfill their financial needs by creating an entertaining product, and the other group of people is trying to fulfill the needs of their donors by uh, creating a, a set of policies that are superficially acceptable to the people that they're giving speeches to, but are really designed to, to satisfy the people who are paying for the, these trips around the country and paying for the commercials and paying for their upkeep and the, and the catering and the fancy hotels and all the things that you see on the, on the plane. And so, what happens after a while? This is exactly what politics isn't supposed to be. You know, the presidential election is supposed to be this forum for us to you know, discover what's going on in America and to listen to people and to find out what people's problems are and to come up with solutions together. And then in, through these discussions, we're, we're supposed to sort of decide um, what the best solutions to these problems are. But that's exactly what doesn't happen on the campaign trail. Uh, you're never in one place long enough to actually find out what's going on with people. You don't talk to people. You're, you're there for 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, the campaign is essentially a roving prison once the Secret Service gets involved. Uh, the journalists can't really go behind the rope line. They uh, are trapped with the same group of people. They talk to the same aides. Uh, and the same politicians for day after day, week after week, month after month, and they're not really interacting with the people that they visit in all these towns. Essentially, this entire process could be done on a roving soundstage, uh, and they could just blue screen in the different uh, crowds, <laughs> and I'm sure in the future that, that is how it will be done, uh, perhaps in the next Trump campaign. But, um, but for now, it's this incredibly dysfunctional thing. And then, so if you, if you consider what actually all this is, after a while, the whole idea that you don't really need to interact with people, that they're just, that the people in the crowds are just there um, as stylized props uh, to make good television. You're looking for a backdrop, you're looking for a factory. Uh, you're looking for cornfields, you're looking for all these things that look good on television, but you're not actually there to interact with people. And what it becomes, after a while, is not 
anything to do with politics, but it becomes essentially a giant TV show. And that's what the, tele the presidential campaign is. Uh, and it was before Donald Trump uh, came on the scene, before he even decided to run for president. The presidential election campaign had essentially devolved into the world's longest uh, and most boring reality show. And um, Donald Trump's innovation, well, he had a number of innovations. And he had a number of key insights, which he may or may not have arrived at consciously. Uh, he, may, he may have just instinctively uh, happened to luck into them. But he had a number of key insights about the process. Number one was that, again, the campaign was a reality show. And it was a terrible reality show. Uh, if you're going to try to run a television program and make money doing it, the idea of having it star people like Scott Walker and Lindsey Graham was completely idiotic. Who, whoever the producers were of that television show needed to be fired, uh, and you need, needed to bring in new stars, real stars, who could attract eyeballs and really sell the program. Donald Trump instinctively understood this. He instinctively uh, grasped from the very first, first moment that he was a candidate um, that there was enormous potential to seize this process, that it was out there for free. He wouldn't need to pay for it. He wouldn't need to produce it. All he had to do was stand in front of the cameras and be himself, and he would instantly create the world's most engrossing uh, and uh, uh, popular television show. And that's exactly what he did. And by the time the media caught on to what he was doing, it was too late. Uh, he had already, at that point, attracted for himself probably over a billion dollars in free coverage. And it didn't matter by the time the media uh, figured out that, they had, um, that he had manipulated them in this fashion. The idea that they turned on him and, and became more negative in their approach towards Donald Trump, uh, editorially, it didn't matter. The, the, sig the thing that really did matter was that he was on all the time. Uh, and this sort of voracious hoovering of free media was really what won him the election. And his insight that, was, that the media was, was susceptible uh, to exactly this kind of character was part of what won him uh, the campaign. The other part of the, of the thing that he did is that he made the media a villain. Uh, on the campaign trail. How do, how do politicians normally win elections? Well, they get up in front of people and they, and they tell people that things are terrible. I understand that you have problems and I'm going to tell you who, you who you can blame for it. And this is, everybody knows this is how you win elections in America. It's how you win elections everywhere. And the standard way to do it has always been, uh, you know, on the right, is to use this dog whistle style of campaigning where you essentially blame minorities and poor people uh, and liberals and foreigners and people across the border. Um, they're the people who are really to blame for your situation. Uh, and that's how you engender their sympathy. Uh, but Trump did exactly that. He doubled down on it. He did it more vociferously than, uh, and shamelessly than any Republican candidate ever had in history. But he also appropriated liberal bogeymen, too. I mean, liberal politicians do the opposite. They get up and say, yes, I know you have problems, but the, but the fault is with all these corporations, these rapacious uh, money-making companies, uh, and they're taking from you. And this might even be true. But Trump did that as well. He, he was sort of ubiquitous and pansexual in his, uh, 
his appropriation of all these different themes, and then he added one more theme that I think was crucial. He said, not only are all these people to blame for your problems, but also the process is to blame for your problems. It's this conspiracy of people in the campaign plane uh, who are responsible for the dysfunctionality of the American political system. And he would point to us. I, I remember being at, at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire, and the press is always behind a rope line. Uh, everybody's probably seen a political speech. There's always a, a group of reporters in the middle, and there's a riser with cameras at it. And we're sort of penned in like zoo animals in the middle of these angry crowds. And Trump started very early, I think, I guess a few months into the New Hampshire campaign, uh, he started to point to us in the middle of the campaign and say, look at these people, look at these bloodsuckers. Uh, they've, never, they've never come so far for an event. They hate me. Uh, they, they didn't believe I would win and they didn't believe I'd be ahead in the polls and look at, look at how well I'm doing. And after a while, he started more and more to physically appropriate us as part of the, part of the act. And people in the crowds would turn and face us and they would start hissing and booing. And Donald Trump took something that is, uh, had always been uh, almost a supernaturally boring phenomenon, which is the American political stump speech, and he turned it into a WWE-style immediate physical theater where the enemy was actually in the room, and we became the representation of this elitist class enemy that was to blame for all of America's problems. And it was brilliant. It was a brilliant innovation, and people who don't give him credit for that are missing the boat and don't understand the, the cleverness and the cunning of what he was doing. And again, he may not have been doing it on purpose, but it worked. Uh, and this criticism of his, and he would elaborate and, and talk about uh, the press and the donors and the two political parties as all being in on it. And they were on it, in on it together. And they had collectively all been sort of cut off and in a bubble and talking to each other and disconnected from the rest of America. And he captured that. And that was the key to his victory. And this symbiotic relationship, the, the fact that he had us, that he had this triumph over us, um, and that even though he was criticizing us and villainizing us, that we didn't stop covering him, um, that was proof to people that he could be effective, that he could take on America's enemies and win. And he's still doing it. And I want to conclude with, with this one observation. How many people watched the, the um, the State of the Union address or the joint session speech the other night. Did everyone here watch that? And how many people watched the coverage after it? Hmm? Yeah, so there was, a, there was this amazing response to Donald Trump after this speech. Uh, Van Jones, who had been uh, a vociferous critic of Trump all the way through, said that uh, when they showed the, the clip of the Owens family that, that Donald Trump became president of the United States in that moment. Um, the New York Times afterwards ran a front page story uh, calling the, essentially calling the speech a triumph and giving Trump credit for his civility and his, uh, his nuance and subtlety. Uh, and this was less than a week after he had called all of us the enemy of the people uh, and kicked us out of a gaggle and denounced us as, as essentially un-Americans. Um, and how do you account for that? Well, you account for that, among other things, by looking at the fact that while presidential, uh, well, cable news ratings typically decline after a presidential election, um, they're up 
almost 50% since, uh, since November. Uh, CNN in the 18 to 42 age category, their, their ratings are up 51% uh, since November 8th. Uh, Fox News is up 50% overall, 30, MSNBC is up 30% overall. Uh, CNN expects to make a billion dollars this year in profits. Uh, the New York Times added 132,000 subscribers in the first 18 days after the election. That's, um, that's 10 times what they added uh, over the previous year. Everybody's making money again. And what happens when that happens is that there's an unconscious, uh, subtextual uh, urge to start approving and ratifying and normalizing the candidate. And that's what happened last year with Donald Trump. He made everybody money. Everybody, everybody made record amounts of money last year. As Les Moonves of CBS said, um, you know, he may be bad for America, but he's good for business. And that's what's going on now. I, at least I believe that that's what's going on now is that there's, this, there's a gravitational pull towards Donald Trump. Uh, he, he makes everybody so much money. He's so successful at commandeering the, the dynamics, the underlying financial dynamics of this process, um, that he, he's beating back everybody's defenses and everybody's criticism. And I think this is an incredibly dangerous thing. And this is really what the book is about. So um, I, I would urge all of you to read it. Uh, I, I think it's an entertaining also account of you know, the worst nightmare in American political history. Um, and unfortunately, all my books are really depressing, but they try to be uh, entertainingly depressing. So in any case, thank you so much for coming out, and I'm looking forward to taking questions. Well, I learned a lot. I think you just need another panda. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, I was, I have a two-parter. I was wondering, do you think anyone could have beaten Donald Trump? Were we, were we all doomed from the start? And what lessons do you think the left should learn from 2016 election? I, I think a better campaign could have beaten Donald Trump, but that's a different question than a different person. Uh, the standard left-wing response that Sanders would have clearly won, I don't agree. He never had a serious negative campaign against him. There's a lot in his past that uh, I'm not sure the, the rank and file you know, blue-collar voters in the Great Lakes would have flocked him. That being said, a campaign that really answered people's problems with concrete solutions would have been more responsive. I, in my free time as a private citizen, not representing my nonpartisan nonprofit organization, in case the IRS is listening, I was campaigning for Hillary in, in, uh, in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, and I was knocking on the door. I met a you know, woman of Puerto Rican descent. She said she wasn't going to vote. And, and I said, you know, people all over the world are dying for the right to vote. She said, you know, eh. I said, you're Latina. What part of Trump hating Hispanics and women don't you get? She said, eh. I said, you know, Hillary has a plan to help your kid go to college. And she sort of perked up a bit. And, and Hillary never explained that message. So I, I think, and, and keep in mind, too, that there wasn't a single state that a Democrat won a Senate seat that you know, Hillary lost the state. And so it's far broader than one campaign. It's that the Democrats and more broadly progressives did not, in my mind, have real solutions to real problems of voters. Um, I'm going to disagree with Joel on this one. I think, I think, um, I, I think almost anybody who wasn't Hillary Clinton would, would, have, would have beaten uh, Donald Trump. And, and I, I say that not as a value judgment about Hillary Clinton or her politics. It was strictly 
due to my experience being out there in the campaign trail and talking to Trump voters, I didn't cover the Democratic campaign really at all. I exclusively covered the Republican campaign. And so I talked to these people a lot. And the, oh, the thing that I heard overwhelmingly, and a lot of these people were former Democrats, was that they wanted somebody who was, who was new, uh, who was not representative of the system, who was an outsider, uh, and Hillary Clinton checked all the negative boxes for these people. I never met a single person who had a, a positive thing to say about Hillary Clinton in these crowds. I did meet a lot of people who had, had positive things to say about Bernie Sanders in these crowds, and that had nothing to do with Bernie Sanders' politics. It had to do with the perception of Bernie as being outside the system. Um, they believed that he was personally honest, which was something that mattered a lot to them. For some, uh, um, and I think, um, and I think the, just the political climate of this year, there, you know, there were a lot of polls that were done that showed that people were willing to embrace a new direction irrespective of what the new direction was. Uh, two out of every three voters said that they were, wanted something different no matter what it was. And that, to me, was the problem with Hillary Clinton because she represented uh, some, a continuation of something, whereas people wanted something different. Hello, Joelle, is that your name? Yeah. So earlier, uh, the gentleman sitting over there brought up Hillary architecting, or sorry, being the architect of mass incarceration, and you referred to her as a progressive and also talked about misogyny being the cause of her downfall in her campaign. I wanted to bring up the fact that her being Secretary of State led to destabilization in the Middle East, and also on top of that, she would have furthered the drone strikes in Yemen, in Syria, and places like that, leading to the refugee crisis, and also she wanted to continue the immigration Wait, hold up. Hold up. I was, I'm going, I'm getting to the question. So, she was going to continue the immigration policies. So I was wondering, how would you have a Democrat that is running like Hillary Clinton or like Obama, how would you support them further and have them beat someone like Donald Trump while calling out an entire section of the voting population and expect to win? In my, book, good, in my book, I'm very critical of the Democratic Party. I know Secretary Clinton. I've known her since uh, 1991. And she did have mostly a very progressive career. As a young woman, she arguably risked her life to investigate civil rights violations in the South. Uh, she fought. She, if I may finish answering the question, she fought to improve education in, in Arkansas. She was elected twice by overwhelming majorities in, in uh, New York State. Uh, claiming she's the architect of a crime bill when she was the first lady is, is a bit much. Uh, the bill was voted for by virtually every member of the Black Caucus. It was voted for by Bernie Sanders. The 96 crime bill was opposed mostly by the right for its horrible investments in things like midnight basketball. But I'm not here to defend Hillary Clinton. My book's about why the Democrats and the Republicans screwed up and why we need a new progressive answer. I think a monumental mistake was voting for the Iraq war and that caused a lot of problems. You know, uh, down uh, the road. So I, and I did not say that misogyny was the only reason she lost. The main reason she lost is she did not tell people how she was gonna solve their problems, and she had a boatload of negatives, including unforced errors, no unforced error to take that money from Goldman Sachs. You're really dumb. You know, the email stuff was blown way out of proportion, but it was an unforced 
era, but this obsession with the left of refighting the 90s, I think is particularly pointless. Uh, we're, we're a few decades later, uh, you know, and, 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 and the truth, you know, we get a, my first book, I, I, I have 30 pages on welfare reform, how it worked better than the left predicted and far less well than the right's claiming, but to go back and not understand what was going on at the time, and not understanding, first of all, how crime was absolutely ravaging the country, particularly low-income communities of color, is, is a mistake. I, I don't say that to excuse what happened, but I think we need to understand uh, what's, ha what's happened and where we need to go in the future. And, and even she and Bill have said that things were wrong about how we incarcerated people. But I think this endless fight of, of who was right and who was wrong 20 years ago is not going to solve our problems now. I'm tempted to just make the quick comment that if you don't think that about a month of Donald Trump's talking commie Bernie and then calling him by his pre-Ellis pre Island family name wouldn't have taken Sanders out, I'm really amazed. But, Joel, my real question is, you talk about a, a more humane gig economy as being a direction to go, but are there really enough jobs and enough gigs to even support that as even the gigs get automated out. Uh, you know, with the classic gig job today, Lyft, Uber, whatever, is gonna be uh, autonomous vehicles in, in five to 10 years. Isn't something, you know, don't we need something more systemic and more in the, in the range of guaranteed basic income to address this? Well, I do talk about the guaranteed basic income in my book and while I am a, a, a obviously finds it appealing. I don't think it's politically sustainable. I don't think the American people will support paying people for not work. And in the end, the right has a dollop of truth to the fact that there is dignity in work. Now, they leave out living wage work, sustainable work, work with benefits. And so the gig economy being systematized isn't one and only answer. We need you know, education for all of people perform national service, they should be able to get education to perform in, in, in the, the modern economy. So my book deals with a lot of uh, solutions, but I think just giving people money not to work is not politically sustainable, and the end, I don't think, will make people very happy. Even, you know, socialist experiments like Kibbutzim, people are working, moving away for that, so I just don't know that it goes with human nature. No, no, I don't want to jump, but I do think there should be guaranteed food, guaranteed housing, guaranteed education, guaranteed childcare, and then everything else should be up to the individual. Um, I'm noticing that there, there seem to be a, a core of uh, Republicans and conservatives who, and libertarians who are now on the outs with the Trump people and opposing them. And I'm wondering what, uh, you know, what people on the left are doing uh, to reach out to the McMull you know, Evan McMullen and uh, uh, people like that uh, who are uh, speaking up. There may be areas where, like a Venn diagram, that there are areas of agreement, like uh, reducing incarceration and uh, rebuilding the infrastructure and uh, uh, especially defending the Constitution. Um, I hear a lot, uh, I mean, uh, Van, you mentioned John, uh, Van Jones's uh, talking about the Love Army, which has got to be the worst name for a movement I've ever heard. And, uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're doing good things, and, and Robert Reich and so forth, but I don't, what I'd like to see is something like, uh, if, if you, excuse me, uh, the scene in uh, Hamilton where uh, Hamilton gets drunk with Lafayette and all the other revolutionaries, and they all happen to be in the same room. When are they going, do, when do you think there will be some uh, pulling together of people in, on the, uh, the libertarian conservative side who oppose and hate Trump 
and people in the labor movement and the uh, progressive movement. So, <laughs> I've spent the last uh, six weeks um, mostly uh, reporting on the Senate. I've been sp spent a lot of time sort of watching how the two parties have responded to uh, Trump being elected president. And one of the things that's really interesting, one of the reasons that's not happening, that rapprochement you're talking about, and that meeting of the, you know, the Venn diagram is that Donald Trump is the person who staked out those positions during the campaign where there might have been common ground, especially with the left. Uh, there were a lot of things, uh, areas of commonality, superficially, uh, in, in a lot of the, the political movements of the last year or so. Just to take an example, um, both parties had in their platform um, support for drug reimportation from Canada. Uh, and what happened after the election was that both parties reneged on their promise to pursue that uh, as a viable opportunity. The Democrats, uh, when an amendment was introduced uh, to allow that to happen, they had 12 defectors in the Senate who basically got that amendment killed. The Republicans went back in their promise. They offered a dummy amendment that didn't really uh, go there. So I think one of the problems is, is that the people who are actually um, on the outs with Trump within the, within the Republican Party, Trump has very cleverly uh, made sure that those are the people who don't have areas of common agreement with the Democrats, except for the fact that they don't like Donald Trump. Policy-wise, they don't have a whole lot in common. The people who have any, anything in common with the Democrats um, are the Trump Republicans, unfortunately. And so that's, that's one of the reasons that I, I see that I think it's, it's difficult. They haven't had a lot of success in building coalitions, even in this, during this nomination process uh, with Trump's nominees. They've had a very difficult time peeling off Republican votes because these people just don't have that, that natural area of, com of focus. I'll just quickly say, I, I don't think we'll ever find common ground with movement conservatives, but the vast majority of soup kitchens and food pantries in America are run by fundamentalist Christians, and I think for rank-and-file people, there's a way to reach them by reminding them what Christ said. But, and, that, and that's true, and that, and, that, and that should be true, but here's the, pro the, the problem with that is that Donald Trump picked a lot of fundamentalist Christians. He's got, he's got a lot of them in the government. He, he, very, he very candidly, even though he has no inclinations in that direction whatsoever, uh, there is nothing religious about Donald Trump, but he, is, he has brought them into the tent and he's giving them what they want on issues that he doesn't care about. And so it's gonna be very difficult to peel those people off, I think. That's true, and, 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 and you know, the previous winner of the Republican primary in South Carolina, Newt Gingrich, between him and Trump, there's six marriages between them. <laughs> right, so exactly. so their, their consistency is a little off on that uh, family thing. This might be a little bit more for you, but I wanna hear both opinions. Uh, it's a little theory that I've got. Five and a half years ago, there was the, uh, uh, the Occupy Wall Street. You wrote a lot about that. Last November, and, and that was a protest of a bunch of people against big something. I'll, it's more detailed, obviously, but that's right. The, right. Last November, there was a protest by a bunch of people who were objecting about being left behind by big something, even though it was a different cast of characters completely. And I just wanted your thoughts on that. You mean the, 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 the Trump movement? They were both, both protesting being left behind by big something. Yeah, and, and they were, in some cases, they were they were actually protesting the same big something. I mean, Donald Trump 
Um, again, you know, being out in the campaign trail, I was astonished to see Trump articulating a lot of the things that you heard at, at Occupy Wall Street. Uh, he, and, and of course, it, it turned out to be completely insincere, as we see by the fact that there were six people from Goldman Sachs uh, in Donald Trump's government. But he went after Goldman Sachs. They became part of his stump speech. Um, if you went out and talked to people in the crowds, they were, they were. I even met people who were like, "I read your book. You're the, you're the, you're the Wall Street guy," you know. And and these people were in Trump's crowds. Um, and and uh, and so yes, he 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 very cleverly appropriated this sort of anti-establishment um, vibe that was out there. Now, I, I, I do think that, that Joel was right, that the Occupy Wall Street movement was not this sort of broad popular movement. It tended, it tended mostly to be an upper class uh, thing. There were, there were a lot of white, kid, white college kids who turned out. Trump mostly appealed to a different crowd. I mean, would you agree? Uh, and, but it, but they were, there was a lot of the same rhetoric. I would say, you know, Occupy, I deal with a lot of this with my book, because Occupy was just the main campus, so to speak, was just a few blocks from my office, and I tried mightily to find common ground with people there and say, oh, come, come with me to a low-income neighbor and actually organize people, and they sort of blew me off. But I think the greatest victory of the right is convince young progressives that government's the enemy. And they don't even know that they've been duped into a right-wing uh, you know, ideology. Forty years ago, most progressives would have understood our only hope of progressive change is, is a progressive federal government. And the fact that so many young people have been turned off by government progressives is actually a huge victory from the right. And the left has no clue about that. Uh, so we have time for the remainder of these questions. Just a reminder to keep them real, real brief. Thank you. So you had a, a, just a great, you know, right there view of the, uh, the election uh, campaign process um, and explain how Donald Trump uh, was perfect for that. How does that translate then to him governing for four years and can that process be successful? And through that, do you see a change in the process of campaigning because of this experience? That's a great question. The, one of the problems uh, with, that I saw with the campaign trail and then I, that I talked about a lot long before this, this year is that the being good at campaigning and being good at the process did not translate into being good at governing. They were two completely different things. Um, and it, it, I think that's very pointedly the case this time around. Uh, they have nothing in common. What I will say is that Trump's skill at creating these misdirectional hurricanes and, and gobbling and, and, and sort of voraciously consuming the media's attention, uh, that is a skill that he will use to his advantage. Um, he's already doing it. He's got the media chasing a thousand different plot lines and not paying attention to things that he's, he is concretely doing. And that, that will benefit him. You know, as a governing strategy, it's, it's gonna be, I don't think that's gonna make him good at governing, but it is a good, it's, it's, a, it's an effective political tool. In terms of changing the process, um, the, the, the thing that I see that makes it difficult to imagine change is that you have to change the underlying financial dynamic of, of the business, uh, of the media, and you know, I don't, I don't see that happening. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you do, Joel. Yeah. No, that's why I call for a constitutional amendment for serious campaign finance reform exactly. and we get rid of the electoral yeah. college.
Yeah, that, that, that would be the one thing, you know, publicly. I, I talk about one congressman who never faces re-election, raises a few hundred thousand dollars a year, who's virulently against food stamps, and yet virtually every meal he eats is paid for by his campaign funds. Right. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Matt and Joel. Um, it seems like a lot of our problems, we could sort of go in the right direction if we could sort of agree on the basic fundamentals of, like, the facts and the information. And... <laughs> seems like print journalism is a really strong way to do that. They usually have the funding and the resources to do that, newspapers and magazines and, and whatnot. But there's a lot of people get their information online and through, you know, Facebook and whatever. So that seems like a problem. Like, how do we get people to agree on the fact that the world is round and that sort of thing and just, like, basic facts? What do you think, like, what are, what are your... What's your prognosis for going forward as far as... So, yeah, I actually wrote a... It's a great question. Um, I wrote a whole book about this uh, 10 years ago uh, because um, I, I had this theory that America was moving away from a model where we had a commonly accepted set of facts. Um, and the, the reason for this is because, again, uh, the financial dynamics of the media business govern uh, that... Each of these channels, each of these news organizations will target a certain demographic, and because financially they're dependent upon telling these people what they want to hear to get them to come back, um, they will inexorably move towards giving these people news that they want, that they want. Uh, and they will pick and choose uh, storylines that are pleasing to their viewers because uh, financially they need to do that in order to survive. That's how Fox News operates. Um, that's overtly their strategy, and it started to happen. The entire media landscape started to atomize, and so what happens when that happens is that the reality becomes shopping, like anything else. When people click on the internet, they don't go to see what the news is. They go to see that they want an experience that's going to validate their own points of view, and so they'll click on, if you're a conservative, you're going to pick on, click on Breitbart. If you're a liberal, you're going to turn on MSNBC, and everybody's going to get different sets of facts. And that is a serious problem um, because we're no longer arguing about the same things. And I think what we've seen in this campaign is that we can't even agree on what, a, what an objective fact is anymore. Uh, fact, the, the whole idea of fact-checking uh, has been uh, taken out of style. Uh, that's considered a liberal conspiracy now. Um, and if you point to something like PolitiFact, people say PolitiFact is geared towards a liberal audience. Uh, so, this, again, this is, a, this is a problem that gets back to the whole idea of how does the media make money. And until we get out of that habit, we're going to have that problem. I'd say if, if you're frustrated as a citizen, imagine how frustrated you'd be as an anti-poverty advocate. Uh, 43 million Americans live in poverty, population bigger than California, half a dozen states combined. 42 million Americans can't afford enough food. Guess how many reporters in America, it's their full-time job to cover this issue? To my knowledge, one. Pam Fessler of NPR won. You know, decades ago, there used to be dozens of people who had a poverty beat. And while most reporters, I might say, are upper middle class white people, and their editors are more like, even more likely to be upper middle class or upper class white people, and they have some bare understanding of global warming and gun violence, no clue 
about poverty. And progressives in the media say stuff to me that could have come out of a right-winger's mouth just because they are so fundamentally ignorant uh, about this issue. So that's a huge problem I deal with on a daily basis. You know, just as an example, you know, Paul Ryan is heralded by many progressive reporters. Oh, he really cares about poverty. He's talking about poverty. He's got a poverty plan. His poverty plan would dramatically increase poverty. It basically consists of taking money away from poor people. And there's no way those same reporters would go, oh, you know, James Inhofe has a great environmental plan because he keeps talking about the environment by tripling coal. And so the, the ignorance in general on, on facts is, is glaring, but on poverty stuff is triply glaring. It, so just to follow up on that, it's worse than that even because... Uh, oh, good. <laughs> I need a panda. Because, it, because it's, not just, it's not just that we ignore poverty. Poverty is actually bad for business. Um, it, it's, it's well established that when people are depressed and when they look at depressing images, they buy less. Um, and so that is why you do not see poor people on television. The only time you ever see poor people on television is when they're being chased by cops. Uh, and I, I, I have a friend who is a television reporter who did a story about a murder in rural Georgia. This is a true story. And all the people in the, in the, in the story were all poor. Uh, they were rural white poor people who were involved in this murder, this murder story. And when he cut his piece, uh, his editor said, I need you to recut this piece and take out the, all the poor people who are on the air and do stand-ups instead. Uh, because these images are too depressing to put on television. Because you can't sell Buicks and cheeseburgers uh, when people are looking at poverty. It doesn't work. Uh, and that's why you have golf and the Kardashians and, and the NBA inst instead, of, instead of poverty. It doesn't work. It doesn't sell. I should just say, this is the, the white English language media. If you watch Univision, there's frequent coverage of this. LGRO, the biggest Spanish language newspaper in New York City. If you were read them for a year in the New York Times for a year about local coverage, you wouldn't know you're in the same city. Okay. All right. Oh, sorry. Okay, me. Um, I have a further question for you. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. It's... That guy next to Matt. <laughs> Joel. Got it. Joel. <laughs> Um, you said earlier that Democrat, not Democrats, the radical left needs to stop dwelling on things that happened 20 years ago. And I'm wondering how you can say that in good faith when the communities that liberal policies destroyed are still facing the lasting effects of these policies that were passed 20 years ago. Like, for instance, in the Middle East, people are, people are still living with drone bombings in the Middle East. People are still facing the lasting effects of imperialism and Western imperialism and colonialism. Communities of color are still facing the effects of mass incarceration, and you say that we should stop worrying about it because it happened 20 years ago. How can you say that in good faith? I didn't say stop worrying about it. I said stop refighting political battles of a few decades ago. We need to learn from the past, and there's a lot of history in my book. I talk about how slavery goes way back beyond Jamestown to you know, Florida uh, and, and the Spanish 100 years earlier. I talk a lot about the history of institutional racism. I have a chart in my book about how mistake, how the US deposing uh, the elected leader of, of Iran and putting in place our handpicked Shah created many of the decades of problems. So we absolutely need to learn from history all I'm saying is this personal thing, oh, the Clintons sucked, or, you, you know, 20 years earlier it would have been George McGovern sold out to us when he was the nominee instead of the pure person, the primary. This personal stuff of score settling, that's what I'm complaining about, not a true fact-based understanding of history and how history, hundreds of years of history impacts where we are today. It's critical we understand the history and learn the lessons from history, and it's critical we understand how racism and misogyny and 
and homophobia and all those issues are, are killing America today and how they're tied to classism and, and creating many of these problems. Hi, I live in poverty, I live in low-income housing, so you know obviously who the question, uh, comments for. You had uh, this great idea where we could use an app on our smartphone. You don't know how many of us can't afford smartphones. Well, that's a good point, but I point out in New York City, two-thirds of the people who receive public assistance, either Medicaid or food stamp SNAP, have, have smartphones. I talk about making this available at public libraries. I talk about using AmeriCorps members with smartphones to visit other low-income people to, to help them get the benefits. So I do talk about the need to do. But do, do you like the basic idea of combining the benefits into one and making it easier to access? Yes, just so that we can all access them. Yeah. By the way, most of my liberal colleagues hate the idea and think I'm a right-wing sellout for proposing it because they say it sounds too much like Paul Ryan. And again, this is small-mindedness of liberals. You know, the only thing in common with Paul Ryan is, is that it sounds like consolidation. My consolidation takes money away from right-wing bureaucracies and gives it to low-income people. Paul Ryan takes money away from poor people to give to right-wing bureaucracies. They're a thousand percent different. Okay, so the question is for you, and that is, um, you're probably aware that our two senators voted against re-importing Canadian drugs from the United States to the United States, and if you look at their funding from pharma companies, it's pretty obvious why. My question is, why the emphasis on the necessity to have a two-party and two-party only system when the two parties have so many financial strings attached. And I can say with confidence that every single third party in Washington takes no corporate money. Um, well, I mean, look, I, I, my view of, of what what's going on in Washington and why it's dysfunctional and why so many things that are both obvious and urgently necessary don't happen is that it's obvious. The, again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but this gets back to money. Politicians need money to run campaigns, uh, especially in the House. They, as soon as they win an election, they have to start raising money again. And what happens is they start, uh, they become addicted to the easy money uh, because it's just too hard to raise money in different, from small individual donors. Uh, you're not going to get there and you're not going to win. And so what do they do? They start to get money from the, the, the big cash sources, which is the financial services industry, the pharma, pharmaceutical industry. And the Democrats in particular have, have reached, I think, a crossroads where they realize that they they're not going to be able to have the kind of popu broad populist message that they need to have in order to be successful long term um, if they don't stop taking the money. But they don't know how to stop taking the money. And I think that's, that's a serious problem. I, th I think that going forward, um, I, I just think it's irreconcilable. You, can, you can't serve two masters at the same time. Um, and that uh, politicians... Uh, have to figure out a way. They have to make a decision about where their loyalties lie. Do they lie with ordinary people, or do they lie with these companies because their their interests are opposed? I think. 
just say, don't, don't, be so sh don't be so sure the Green Party didn't get a little secret right-wing money, but I'll just say it's easy not to accept money you're not offered. I ran for state senate when I was 21, spent $4,000 and bragged I wouldn't take a dime of PAC money. I wasn't offered a penny. <laughs> Too bad you get the last word. Um, how do we encourage or incentivize the idea of news as a civic duty as opposed to entertainment? Like a move back to what we thought of it previously. Yeah. By his book. I mean, I, I think it's really hard. I think, first of all, people have to support independent journalism. They have to support good journalism. I think this gets, this gets back to what Joel was saying. Yeah, you, we can't let consumers off the hook here. We can't let ordinary people off the hook. They're, they make bad decisions about what news that they want to consume. But I think also, um, you know, I, I, th I think there's a happy medium between being commercially successful and telling the truth. And, and I think that, that it's, it's just too easy in our business to say, we're gonna, do the, we're gonna do this selling kind of journalism and you know, the nation and the intercept, they can do the boring, real kind of, kind of journalism and, and somewhere in between people will be able to find out what the truth is. I, I think that lets everybody off the hook. I think, I think the, the, you know, the sort of hardcore liberal reporters, they have to do better at trying to, trying to get audiences um, and I think these commercial organizations have to, to work harder at uh, doing reporting that really matters and is really valuable and is good uh, and also sells. I mean, I, I, the, if, if this is the system that we're going to have, um, those are the challenges that they face and, and they're too lazy. You know, they, they just give up too easily and, and, dis, and say this, this format works, it sells, so that's what we're going to do. I just urge all of you to be a little more discerning about what you retweet and post. Yeah, there's that too, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you both for two uh, very interesting narratives about our election. Could you comment more about each other's presentation? Are, progr are progressive politics doomed because of the way the media is portraying uh, the election process, and are there ways that progressive politicians can use the media to advance their position? Well, I, I loved, you know, his, his presentation I love because I agreed with it. Uh, but, you know, Bob Hope said you always know a man's brilliant when you agree with what he, what he says. And, you know, my previous life I was a political operative trying to convince uh, people like Matt to, to write the narrative. But I, I, I don't think we're, we're doomed. I think we need to adapt to the tools of modernity and, and, and change. And the only bright spot of the last election, if the Democrats and progressives do what the Republicans did after the wipeout of 1964, and really say, okay, nothing's working. We've got to start from scratch and rebuild this from the bottom up. This can be, in the long run, if the country isn't blown up, a blessing in disguise. But if the Democrats just refight old wars or just say the same old messages, we're, we're, we're doomed. And if, if, if you know, the media doesn't adapt as, as well, we're, we're doomed. But I'm ultimately an optimist. We've gotten past worst, and we will get past this. Yeah, and I... I, I agreed with Joel's presentation as well. I mean, I, 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 think, I think the thing that's optimistic about, about his presentation is that what he's talking about, the problems of hunger and poverty, and um, it, it presents, as depressing and horrible as it is, it presents a political opportunity for any, uh, any politician who effectively communicates that they have a solution to those problems. And, and, and the, 
the enduring lesson of what happened last year for me was that the, the Democrats made the mistake of not having that message or not effectively communicating to people that they had solutions to those problems. And I think Joel's right. If they, if they, if they can just physically go out and talk to the people and, and get them to see that they do have solutions, um, that there's a tremendous political opportunity there. Um, whether we can get the media to cover it, I have no idea. That's a different sex <laughs> question I, entirely. I had one plea to the media, to, not you, but the rest, to move beyond this ridiculous obsession. Who won today's news cycle? <laughs> a thousand, I talk about my book, uh, Inside a Political Publication New York, discussed whether uh, Governor Cuomo won or lost the week in terms of how he reacted to his partner getting breast cancer. And we've reduced everything to a political win or loss, not, oh, by the way, is this good for people or bad for people? And, and actually, that's really interesting because that's, that's something that drives me crazy about how we cover politics in this country. Um, are anybody here football fans? Yeah. So if you ever watch the NFL today, uh, the format is exactly the same format that we use to cover election nights in this country. You have the anchor on one side of the, uh, of the, of the, the set, and then there's two analysts. There's one for one team and one for the other team. Uh, and they sit there and they go back and forth and they, decide, and they, and they debate who won. Uh, and it's sports. And politics is not sports, it's real life. And I think uh, we have to get away from this, this cheap, uh, instinct that we have to turn everything into a contest uh, and and try to dramatize it that way because again it's it, it's more nuanced and subtle than that so it seems like there's a lot to be hopeful about right now the way people are coming together but one thing that's giving me a lot of hope is the um, Russia story and I'm wondering if either of you have any insight into how far that's going to take us in um, draining the cabinet. I'd say it's a grave threat to the republic if the vast majority of voters don't give a squat. Yes, it's, it's process, and people don't care about process. They want to know whether you're going to get them jobs or send their kids to college or improve their health care. And, and so, you know, maybe if a lot of people go to jail or something or a lot of people are fired, it'll be seen as a competence issue. But I, and I, I think the media is right to, to focus on this. But I think if you guys think this is going to turn everything around, it's going to give the Democrats the House in two years, you're mistaken. Thank God you said that. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I was sitting uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago in the Senate during the, uh, the, the Democrats' effort to, to block uh, Pruitt's nomination. So they, had, they were doing this trick where they had 30 consecutive hours of debate. It was kind of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. They're staying up all night um, trying to keep the floor open. And so they had to continuously speak. And everything they talked about was Russia, Russia, Russia. That's, the, that's all that everybody's talking about uh, in Washington right now. And what they're not talking about is what's our message? What are we actually going to do for people? And uh, look, there, there's that. That's, that's a bad thing because we're, we're talking about something that isn't fundamentally connected to what's going on in ordinary people's lives. Then there's the other thing that I think is, inc is incredibly dangerous from the perspective uh, of a journalist which is Donald Trump has preemptively attacked the media by calling, them calling out fake news, right? And here is the media and the Democratic Party and all of its followers piling onto a story that is 
fundamentally driven by unnamed sources from the intelligence community uh, who are leaking things piecemeal, and there's an, an enormous amount of speculation that goes with a, a relatively smaller amount of concrete facts. We do know certain things. We know the Russians probably hacked the DNC. We know they probably gave the story to WikiLeaks. We know that Flynn talked to the ambassador. We know now that Sessions may have talked to the ambassador. But beyond that, but beyond, excuse me? Well, I don't know. I mean, and this is, my, this is my problem, is that this is being litigated in the media where we have, we have law enforcement agencies um, that should be doing this on their own uh, if they have enough uh, facts to act. And so, again, just to get back to my, my point, if this turns out to be less than meets the eye, Trump will be able to hold that over all, everybody forever, and it will be... It will be a disaster of unparalleled proportions if this story blows up uh, in everybody's faces. And, that's, and that, I think, is very dangerous. And I think it's not, the, not that it shouldn't be investigated. It should be investigated. But I worry about drawing conclusions about it too early because it's politically dangerous. Just two other quick points. The, 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 the Russians did not hack the mechanisms of voting and counting votes. And anyone from the right to the left who thinks there's a grand conspiracy covering the actual counting of votes does not understand how elections work in America done by hundreds of thousands of regular people, Democrats and Republicans at the county and, and city and, and precinct level. So they didn't do that. They influenced how voters might think. But I point out, the main contours of this story were well known before the election. Hillary attacked Trump on it in a debate, and by and large, voters didn't care. So I know we see this as a silver lining, we'll get President uh, Pence. That's no great silver lining. <laughs> and just to, just to follow up on that, I, I lived in Russia for 10 years. Um, I was there throughout the entire 90s. Um, I was there when, when Boris Yeltsin ran for re-election in 1996, and the United States openly meddled in that election. If you look at the, at the, uh, the cover of Time magazine in July of 1996, the headline is, Yanks to the Rescue, uh, because we sent advisors over to help Boris Yeltsin win the election. Uh, we helped organize his finances for that election. We helped uh, organize a coalition of people that we subsequently called oligarchs, um, uh, who were the beneficiaries of a privatization program that America organized, uh, and those people donated money to Boris Yeltsin's campaign, and Yeltsin won that election. So from the Russian point of view, the idea that this is something that you know, has never been done before, it's laughable. Um, but that's not to say that you know, what the Russians did hacking, hacking the DNC wasn't unprecedented and crazy and horrible. I'm just saying that, as Joel said, this is, this is something that was known, that the voters didn't terribly care about or care about enough, and I, I worry about hanging our hat on it as the solution going forward because the real solution has to be, has to be something more policy-wise and rooted in the, in the United States. Hey there. Um, so I think until we have campaign finance reform, we're, we're stuck with the Democrats. So my question to you is, uh, you know, I think we can all make calls to a specific senator or something like that and lobby them, but how do we, as citizens, influence the Democratic Party to find their soul? I think like when Nancy Pelosi is still in charge and then we've got this whole back and forth over who's going to run the DNC and save the Democratic Party, how can we as people influence the 
Democratic Party to find their soul again? Well, you're, you're doing it already, actually. Um, you know, look at a, a great example was the, was the DeVos hearing, you know, led by your own Senator Murray. Um, the Democrats prior to that, uh, if you look at the news stories, you know, in the, in the weeks after Trump's election, they had essentially settled on a strategy of um, what, if, what one person I talked to in the Hill was calling the law of conservation of no's. In other words, we can't say no to Trump on everything. We can only say so many times. So we're going to pick our battles and we're not going to oppose all of these people. We're going to focus on Tom Price. We're, we're not going to worry about these others. We're going to vote for them. And there was this enormous backlash from people. Uh, the, the marches hugely influenced the Democratic thinking on it, and the outpouring of anger and rage after the DeVos hearing, uh, which sort of spontaneously flowed over the internet, convinced them to change, convinced them that there was an energy and, and political benefit in opposing people who absolutely should not be you know, running federal agencies. Um, and so they, they've already changed. They've already decided to go after uh, all of these nominees. Now, they weren't effective uh, in, in sinking all of them, but it was a factor, for instance, in preventing Andy Puzder, the worst person in history, from becoming the labor secretary, uh, you know, the guy who want, believes that robots are better, the best workers, and because they don't file sexual harassment suits. So going out in the streets, writing letters, doing all that stuff, it works, you know? I and mean, that's, that's the enduring lesson. People need to hear it from people. And I want to be clear, in my book, I make it clear, I don't equate the Democrats having more backbone and having more serious proposals with them reflexively moving to what this audience might consider the pristine left. If you can't win, you can't govern. And for all, I'm sure most of you disagree, but the facts show the American people don't vote against Democrats because they don't think they're left enough, because they don't think they represent their values. So first and foremost, the progressives have to show we care about family, we care about community, we care about rewarding work. I think sometimes, again, we get caught up in the silliness. I thought, you know, who the DNC chair is not quite pointless, but close to pointless, and, and the belief that, you know, the DNC stole the last primary election is just ridiculous, and the idea that they're going to set the agenda for the Democratic Party is ridiculous. The presidential nominee will, and the Democrat elected officials and this false equivalency uh, you know I actually think Patty Murray's a pretty darn good senator and if we had a hundred of her we, we wouldn't have most of these problems so you may quibble at some vote against you know drug importation or something but part of it's also having the back of your friends and if you have their back on you know 90% of the issues they agree with you then you have a little more credibility pushing them on the 10% they don't progressives are very bad at supporting their friends and that's something they have to do as well as well as going after the enemy Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Joel Berg is the author of America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. Matt Taibbi's latest book is Insane Clown President, Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. They spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 2nd. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.